Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we are in Acts chapter uh, 18 tonight. I am going to read the first um, 11 verses. That's going to be the text for our study. Before I do that, let, uh, let's just ask God one more time um, to, to bless His Word and to turn our hearts to it. So, uh, Lord, again, we, we do just pray now, Lord, for this time that we have in Your Word, that You uh, would please give us ears to hear You. We pray, Father, that You would open our hearts to receive what You want to do in our lives, Lord. And I pray that tonight would be a breakthrough night, Lord, that we would see um, ourselves through the lens of, of Your Word in a way that is helpful and uh, and transformative and helpful for our future. So we, we just commit this to you and pray, Lord, that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he came to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, who was born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. So Paul comes to Priscilla and Aquila, he finds them uh, in Corinth, and it says that because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and he wrought, he worked, for by their occupation, they were tent makers. So Paul takes a job in Corinth after leaving Athens, and it says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, if you've been following along as we've gone through this week by week, um, Paul had been north, about 200 miles of this, up in Philippi, the region of Macedonia. And um, he had left Silas and Timothy behind. He himself had hurried out because things were getting tense and there were um, reasons to remove him from the situation. And so Paul goes to Athens alone, spends a short time there, and then from Athens to Corinth, and now uh, Silas and Timothy catch up with him. And when they do, Paul is somewhat revived. So he begins now to get very bold about Jesus, as he did in the places that he went. And it says that when they, that is the Jews that he spoke to, opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment, or his clothing, and he said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, uh, my responsibility uh, or my accountability for your salvation is off my hands. I have testified to you. I have brought to you in the clearest terms uh, with the most persuasive language that I can. I've brought to you the message. You yourselves have chosen to refuse it. And so my hands are clean. I'm, I'm finished trying to wrestle this uh, through with you. He says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, which is what God told him to do all along. Um, but Paul had this burning heart for his people, the Jewish people. And so he would preach to them, but now he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he departed thence and he entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard or was connected literally to the synagogue. And I just love that picture because Paul's like, I'm out of here, I'm leaving. Then he goes next door. So he doesn't go very far, <laughs> but he goes. And it says that Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing the message of Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, verse 9 and 10, 
uh, and 11. This is our, our text, what I want to share with you from tonight. It says this. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And he said, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not your peace. Three things. Don't be afraid. Speak and hold not your peace. And that is not redundancy. He's not saying the same thing twice. He says, for I am with you and no man shall set on thee to hurt you for I have much people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I personally have always had a very awkward relationship uh, with fashion and clothing. I don't know if you've ever noticed that from uh, being around me or if you know me. Um, I think it all started when I was born. I was born naked, and uh, that was an extremely traumatizing and awkward experience for me, apparently, um, because I've just never, ever uh, felt right. I've never been comfortable really in my own skin. Um, very traumatic, but, um, but very early on in my life, my parents put me in, in Catholic school, and in Catholic school, you have to wear a uniform, and so every single day, I would put on the same navy blue pants and the light blue uh, collared golf shirt, and I would wear a uniform, and, and that actually made it really easy because everyone was wearing the same thing, and so you never had to think about or worry about what you were going to wear. You just always wore it. The only problem was it was extremely ugly and very uncomfortable, um, but you didn't pay attention to any of that. Um, when I was in fifth grade, my parents pulled me out of Catholic school and they sent me to public school. If you want to traumatize a youth, do that. Just pull them out of private school and throw them to the wolves, really, uh, public school. But that's what happened. And so I went in there and had no idea what to expect. And so for the first time, I had to think about what I was going to wear. And so what do you do? You look around at what everyone else is wearing because you don't want to stand out. So you want to fit in. And it was right about the time that skids were a thing. I don't know if you guys remember skids. They were like the baggy, like patterned, lightweight pants that had the little logo on the back with the, the car that was kind of skidding, you know? And they were huge. Everyone had skids. And I really wanted skids because I wanted to fit in. But my dad wouldn't pay for them because they were like name brand and they were a thing, you know? So I couldn't have skids. And I tried to compromise and get off-brand skids, but I couldn't get off-brand skids either because it was too much. So the compromise, my mom, who wanted to help, um, she took an old bed sheet and she actually made me a pair of pants out of a bed sheet. This, again, very traumatizing thing. This is very therapeutic. I appreciate you listening, you know, thing. But then I had to wear them because she made them, you know. So now I'm wearing these homemade pants that are supposed to look like skids, in, in a public school setting where I'm the new guy, you know, it was just extremely awkward, just extremely uh, traumatizing experience. So I make it through elementary school. I get into middle school and high school, and I, I kind of um, melded with the, the, the skateboarder, the skater crowd. And so with, with skateboarders, it's just baggy. You know, the bigger, the better. So like double X, you wear a belt, big shirts that look like skirts, you know, uh, long hair, you know, that was, that was just, and it worked, you know, I was kind of in that crew, and you're kind of going through and the whole thing, you know, but then I, I finished high school and kind of moved beyond that stage, and I did a year of college at SUNY Purchase, and I don't know if you guys, that's only about an hour from here, maybe you, you've been there, or you know something about that school, it's an art school, I didn't go there for art, don't ask me how I ended up there, I think it was God, like, getting me ready to get saved, but it's literally the strangest people from like 48 states. 
that all come in, and they, it's literally a freak show, and, and you cannot fit in there. It's impossible because everyone is trying to be an individual. And, and so everyone wears the craziest clothes. And it actually helped me because I learned in, in that one year of college that I'm actually just a jeans and t-shirt guy. You know, because that, that was like what I became comfortable in. It's like, okay, I can wear a pair of jeans and I can wear a t-shirt. The problem is you, don't, you actually don't fit in in a freak show when you're wearing jeans and t-shirts. You actually stand out because you dress normal in a context like that. And so it's like no matter what, no matter what, I've never been able to really figure it out, you know, the whole clothing and, and fashion thing, okay? Now, what I have learned in my adult life and from observing these things and struggling through these things is that, is that clothing is always somehow attached to identity or expression or perception, and that is that people dress in a way wherein they're trying to reflect something through their outward appearance of what they are, or at least what they want you to think that they are on the inside. And so fashion is connected to identity. It is, in a sense, an external canvas that projects an inward identity that no one can actually see through the clothes that you're wearing. So I can create an identity that I can project and make you want to think of me based upon the things that I wear. And, and that's what humans do. That's what fashion is all about. It's about trying to make a presentation. It's, it's selling an image or an identity that may or may not be. Okay, now in the beginning, when God first made man, there were no clothes, when God made Adam and put him in the garden, it says that he was naked and he was unashamed. And the context and the idea behind that was not simply just in the physical sense that he wasn't wearing anything, but in the spiritual or emotional or soulish sense, it's communicating that he just was, that he was completely known, that he was completely authentic, that he was completely transparent. I'm not even 100% sure that when Adam and Eve were in that condition, that they even communicated with words. They probably were so linked in, in such a deep level that they could communicate just by being in one another's presence. They could perceive and understand one another's thoughts. They were that transparent, and their identity was that well-known. It was just out there on the surface. That's what it was. But when they fell and became broken, and then aware of their condition, and aware of their shame, and their vulnerability, and their nakedness, and their brokenness. It was then that God instituted clothing for the sake of covering, okay? Now, the clothing was not so that man could be covered or shielded from the eyes of God, because you cannot be hidden or shielded from the eyes of God. The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, so God didn't create clothing so that we could be something in his presence. Oh, okay, I know you're messed up, but thank you for at least dressing the part of something good. God sees right through it. He doesn't even recognize it. He did it for the sake of one another. He gave us clothes. It's actually a gift so that we would be covered and protected from the judgment and, and, and really the, 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 the wickedness of other people. Okay, now for me, my clothing struggles did not stop once I got saved. All right, it just became a whole new thing because now I'm saved. Jesus met me, okay? I still got to wear clothes, so now I might as well look the part. 
So I start looking around and I see, okay, in the church, we're wearing collared shirts, we're wearing pleated pants, we're wearing a certain type of shoes, okay? When we're out in public, we're wearing shirts with catchy slogans on them and fish logos and this kind of thing and the hats. And it's just like a whole new style of things. For a while, there was this big thing within the church of Hawaiian shirts. So I went to the Salvation Army and I found these old Hawaiian shirts. And for a while, I'm wearing these Hawaiian shirts. I feel like a moron and big sleeves and, and the whole thing. But it's like, but here I am, like I'm saved. You know, I'm wearing the clothes and, and, and I'm playing the part in the whole thing. Okay. Now, here's what happens is that the concept of clothing, covering, the concept of projecting an image, it goes beyond just the physical, tangible fabric or style or color of what I'm wearing. And clothing actually becomes a thing that exists internally. It exists within the soul. There's a a covering of the personality, of the identity, a projection of an image or of a person that I want someone to think I am based upon the way I talk, the things I say, the way I behave, what I allow you to see. You don't see the real me. You see what I want you to see. And the Bible actually talks about that type of behavior in the context of clothing. You remember that Jesus said, beware of false prophets. He said, they come to you in sheep's what? Clothing, but inwardly they're they're ravening wolves. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees, the religious rulers. And he said, you wear white garments so that you appear on the outside to be righteous and holy. But inwardly, what's behind what you're putting forward for people to see is wickedness and extortion and covetousness and all sorts of filth and vileness that you think God can't see because man can't see it. And so Jesus took the the idea, the concept of clothing and dress, and he moved it out of the physical and he moved it into the realm of the spiritual. And so what happens is that we have the ability to project a personality, okay, even though Our actions don't line up with who we truly are, our true selves. And so here's the the issue, and here's where we're going, is that for Christians, clothing in the spiritual sense can become a covering for the soul. Okay, like Jesus said, wolves in sheep's clothing. All right, so what is sheep's clothing? What does that look like? What is the clothing of a Christian internally? It's a certain behavior. It's an expression or an outward presentation that I make of myself when I'm in a community of Christian people or in a church to make you see what I want you to see, that I am what I'm supposed to be, all right? Everyone wears sheep's clothing, all right? All of us right now, you might not be a wolf, but all of us are in this building right now wearing sheep's clothing in some context or form or another, okay? If you want to belong, then you better get the name brand. No homemade sheet sewn, you know, skids, all right? You have to play the part. What does it mean? It means that you act a certain way. You know that you have to behave a certain way. You have to use certain language, and there's certain language that you don't use and can't use when you're around people of faith. There are things that you do, And there are things that you don't do. 
There are times that you go to bed and there's times that you get up. There are things that you do first thing in the morning. What do you do first thing in the morning? You pray and read the Bible, right? You better do these things. This is part of what is expected. All right, there are things that you watch and there are things that you don't watch. There's things that you listen to, things that you don't listen to, things that you say or talk about, and things that you refrain, you keep inside, okay? We actually have a name in the church, in Christian communities, for Sheep's Clothing Fashion School. Do you know what we call it? Discipleship. It's actually discipleship. It's where we learn how to put these clothes on. We go to a class and we learn this is how a Christian thinks. This is how a Christian talks. This is how a Christian behaves. And the implication is now start faking it until it becomes authentic. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. Now, before you think that I'm like making, you know, negative comment on all of, all of that, all right, I think that's actually essential, that it's actually not a bad thing. I know I wasn't cognitive of it at the time, but I do know that the first article of clothing that I had as a human being was a diaper. And the reason for that is because there was stuff coming out of me when I was first born that needed to be contained. All right? And so when I was first born again, there was still stuff coming out of me that needed to be contained. I needed discipleship. I needed sheep's clothing. Okay, because my character had not yet caught up with what was acceptable or right or helpful to other people. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing, all right, that we wear sheep's clothing because it's just part of a, a discipline, it's part of an education. But here's the problem, is that clothing is not made to last forever. Clothing wears out. Clothing changes. And ultimately, if clothing is held onto too long, then what's behind the clothing can become diseased, and you can end up like the Pharisees where Jesus said, hey, the outside looks real good, but you haven't dealt with what's on the inside because you're so secure behind what everybody sees outwardly. The clothing isn't intended to last forever. Okay, now some of the reason for that, and we've seen it, we've seen people that they appear one way and then they're exposed to be something else. Some of the reason for that is the fault of Christian culture, okay? Because Christian culture does not give people space or allowance to not be perfect yet. We are so judgmental and we are so quick to pounce on people that aren't there yet or they, they haven't changed according to our timing or they haven't checked off the big ones off the list yet, and so people hide behind the appearance of things in their lives because they just want safety. They need the refuge in the oasis of the church, but they don't want to be judged. And we're too quick to judge, and we don't give people space. And that it fosters an environment of falsity, of, of fashion, of sheep's clothing. Okay. The other reason I think it's a problem is because as church leaders, we are too quick to promote people into positions of influence and leadership based upon ability without regard to character. And when you put someone in a position based on ability, but their character has not yet come into a place where they're qualified spiritually to be handling people's lives, you're forcing them to cover up things that on the inside still haven't changed. And over time, those things fester. They continue to grow. They aren't dealt with in a right way. 
and they become huge problems later on in life. Like when a pastor falls or someone abuses people or something like that. It's somewhat, it is the church's fault, okay? Every Christian wears soul clothing that's not necessarily a true reflection of what they are on the inside. It's just a reality. Now, why do I open the study that way? Here's the reason. Because when we come to Acts chapter 18, we see a very different Paul than we've ever seen before this. There's something so radically and drastically different about Paul when he comes to Corinth that it has to raise a question. Prior to Paul coming to Corinth, we would describe him with words like immovable strength. I mean, you see the way that he goes into a village with so much strength and confidence and security and assurance of what he's going to do, the way he stands up to opposition, the way he answers those that oppose themselves or oppose him, the boldness that he has. There's a strength in him that's unshakable. We, we see in him also an unshakable confidence, and we see an enviable clarity that he just seems to always know exactly what to do next. Even when he doesn't know, he seems to just figure it out with such clarity, such confidence. And this is Paul. We, we love it. This is what we want, okay? We saw Paul when he was in Lystra, and we see that he is, he is resisted by the people there, and they actually stone him throw him outside the city and leave him for dead. And when he comes to and stands up, what does he do? He goes right back into the city and faces the very people that just tried to kill him. Boldly, unashamed, not afraid. Okay, then we see Paul and he is in Philippi and he's beaten and he's whipped and then he's put in prison and then you know, this whole thing happens where the chains are opened and the, you know, the, 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 they don't run away. And then the magistrates send a message. The, the people that arrested him send a message and say, okay, uh, you're, you could go. And Paul goes, no, I'm not leaving. You tell them to come tell us to leave. You t- tell them to bring their whips. Tell them to bring the sticks. They want us to leave. We're not leaving quietly. You tell them to come. And you're like, what is this man made out of? I want some of that. But now he leaves Philippi goes to Thessalonica, goes to Berea, goes to Athens, comes to Corinth, and all of a sudden, he's in this moment where the Lord comes to him, and it's right there in our text, and the Lord says to him in verse 9, it says that the Lord spoke to him in a vision by night, and he says, be not what? Afraid. Okay, now, now listen, just in case you might think for a minute that God is misreading Paul, all right? God doesn't misread people. If God tells you not to be afraid, then what does God see behind and in the nakedness of what everyone else sees? He sees fear. That's why God says, don't be afraid. God sees something that we have never seen in Paul. And so we ask the question, did this just suddenly appear? That all of a sudden Paul just had a moment and something in his brain just kind of clicked and, and what he never had any fear. And now all of a sudden he's just afraid. Or, or was it there maybe the whole time just under the surface of the boldness and the energy that he, 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 was, he was facing? Notice with me at the end of the, the section in verse 11. After God speaks to him this way, it says that he continued there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's the longest period of time that he has spent in any place. 
And you almost get the idea that he was about to leave. He's testified. He's given the gospel. People have believed. There's been many baptisms. And every other place that he's gone, what happens after that? He leaves. And you almost think that he's about to be like, all right, guys, time to move on. And God comes to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid. I want you to stay put here. I want you to speak. I don't want you to hold your peace. I'm going to protect you, but I have many people here in the city. And, and, and Paul does it. Now, here's the amazing thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul's letter to this group of people, I want you to hear what he says about what they saw in him. He says this. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's the way he describes what they would see in him during the time that he was there. That's a very different Paul than any Paul version that we have seen thus far. There's something different. God gives Paul a command, a promise, and then he gives him reason. Notice them with me. The command is this. He says, speak and hold not your peace. Two different things. Number one is speak. That was Paul's gift. That was his avenue. That was his sword. It was his pen. Paul's ability to communicate was his power and his strength to, to convey the message. But the second thing is what interests me. He says, hold not your peace. You almost think, well, that's just redundant. That's just God saying, like, let me be clear. Speak and speak. No, 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 no. It's different. Speak is to speak. Okay, we can, I'm speaking right now. But when he says, hold not your peace, there's something deeper in the language. Okay, to hold something is to internalize it, to hide it, to cover it. Hold, you're holding, it's, it's, it's held inside. And then he says, hold not your peace. The peace is something that's internal. It's, it's invisible. It's under the surface. It's something that no one can really see if it's actually there or not. Essentially, what God is saying to Paul, he's saying, Paul, not only do I want you to speak the things that you know are true, but I want you to let people see what's actually going on inside of you. I want you to strip away the strength. I want you to put away the confidence that makes everyone think that you're the guy. I want you to put away the lack of fear that you present. And I want you to be seen as you really are. And here's the reason why. Because... I have many people in this city. In other words, I have a ministry and a mission for you here that's going to require more of you than just the conveyance of information. There's a transparency of something real and intimate and under the surface and deep that I have done and am doing in your life that might not look like what the world glorifies as perfect are amazing, but it needs to be seen for what it is. And I need you to let it out here in Corinth in a way that you never have before, because I have a lot of people in this city and they need it. Now, I want to double click on that for just a minute. This city, many people in this city. Where was he? He was in Corinth. Corinth was a sister city to Athens, which meant that they shared the same values and the same culture. The only difference is that they were a little bit less affluent. 
If you could afford to live in Athens, you didn't have to work. You could just hang out in the Areopagus and you could philosophize all day. That's what they did. But if you lived in Corinth, you probably couldn't afford to do that. So you were a tent maker or you had some job, something that you had to do because you needed to make money. But you had the same values and the same culture. It was just real life. That means that the people in Corinth, listen to me, they were educated They were informed, they were sophisticated, they were creative, they were inventive, they were industrious, ambitious, and they were also indulgent and opulent, right? Because they were in the the heart of the Roman Empire right in Greece. These were not a spiritual people by the sense of their holiness, okay? But what they did, or what they had, was a regular city life. And the majority of the people in the world can probably relate more with the people of Corinth than anywhere else or anyone else that we see in the Bible. You know what's interesting to me? Is that when you break down Paul's letters in the New Testament, he wrote 29 chapters to the Corinthians. If you add up all of the other chapters that Paul wrote to the other churches that he visited the combined amount of all the others is also 29 chapters. I don't count Romans because Paul didn't go there. He wrote it before he ever visited that place. Romans is a little bit different, okay? But there's the equal amount between just the Corinthians and everyone else. He gives them so much more than anyone else. Now, the next longest letter of Paul after Corinthians is Romans. He writes 16 chapters of stuff to them, all right? And, and here's, the, here's what's amazing to me when I just look at the two things side by side. You take Romans and you take Corinthians, both instrumental, powerful, world-changing letters. But when you read Romans, what do you see? You see concept, you see theology, you see the internal workings of what the gospel does. It's very impersonal. It's very technical, It's just, this is what it is. This is what God did in the Old Testament. He brought it through to Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. Now that he did, people can have peace with God. Now that we have peace with God, we enter into this life where there's a struggle. Now there's this Holy Spirit thing that happens in us and it changes everything. And and he just goes through, but it's very, very technical. It's not very personal. It's, It's concept. But when you get into Corinthians, it's totally different. When you get to Corinthians, it's real life. Corinthians is is what Christianity looks like when you mix it with the mess of humanity. And some people have even said that Corinth was the most unhealthy of the New Testament churches. Because when you read the issues that Paul had to address and write about, you say, man, these people were messed up. No, they weren't messed up. Do you know what they were? They were normal. They were Christians. They were people that were bought with Jesus' blood And we're living in a fallen, broken world and needed help. And God wrote to them to give them the help that they needed. They were actually the most real, the most actual, the most authentic expression of the tension that exists between what we actually are and who God says we are. And that's a real tension because those two things don't line up. God says you're holy. God says you're perfect. God says you're clean. We go, (laughs) I don't know what you're seeing, but that's not what I really am. Now, here's what God's call to Paul is in Corinth. He says, Paul, I don't want you to just plan a church. I want you to pastor a church. I don't want them to just hear you. I want them to see you, not in your strength, 
but in your weakness. Not in your heroicism, but in your vulnerability. And this is a huge challenge for Paul because this is the first place that he goes to where Batman has to become Bruce Wayne. Where what he is on the inside is being called out to be on display for the people that he's leading to see what he actually is. He's being called to put aside what's impressive and embrace what's authentic in the presence of the people that he's being called to lead. You say, why is God asking this of him? Why this change? Why at this time? Here's why. Because if people are really going to know what it means to experience life and purpose and freedom and love and relationship in Jesus, then they have to know what it is and what it isn't. And they're going to have to see it on a deeper level than just the clothing and the outwardness of the presentation. I think that Paul's ministry to Corinth, what we have recorded for us in those letters, gives us a better understanding of what it actually means to be a Christian than any other part of the New Testament, except for maybe the Gospels when you look at the way Jesus dealt with people. Because it's real life, okay? Romans tells you theologically, academically, and philosophically what Christianity is. But Corinthians tells me what it looks like in the midst of my mess. Ephesians tells me that I'm to love my wife. Corinthians tells me that there's times and there's going to be times that I'm going to wonder why anyone in their right mind would ever get married for any reason whatsoever. Roman, or I'm sorry, Colossians tells me that I'm to submit to my boss and respect and honor the people I work for. Corinthians tells me what to do when I want to slash their tires and drag them to court because they're acting so unfairly and unjustly. The epistles of Paul so often give to us ideals, but Corinthians actually tells us that there are times when ideals are impossible because of the tension that exists within uh, us and within the world that we're living in. If I don't know, as a, as a follower of Jesus that God is with me in the midst of the mess of life and I have to keep hiding what I really am and trying to be what I cannot become, then the clothing I'll need to cover it is going to choke me out over time. And there are too many Christians that have experienced that in trying to hide the difference between what they are and what they're called to be. So I, I was curious about this because I was so struck by the difference in all of it. And so I took some time to just read First and Second Corinthians because I really wanted to hear what Paul had to say to this group of people that were wrestling with the same types of things that I wrestle, wrestle through. And so I read First and Second Corinthians. And what I found when I read those two books is that there are, are 12, essentially 12 points, 12 12 nuggets that you can boil out Paul's teaching to as you successively go through them. 12 principles. It's kind of like what a parent would say to a child. Like, these are the things I, I want you to know. And I'm not going to expound on them, but I am going to tell you what they are, and I have a reason for doing it. So I'm not just uh, wasting your time. But let me quickly just tell you what Paul says to the Corinthians, this group of people. First and foremost, right at the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you're in. You've got to know that you are in that you've been accepted by God, that he's got his hand on your life, and that he is going to preserve you and keep you all the way to the end. And if you don't know that at the beginning, you're going to have a really, really hard journey walking because there's going to be a lot of times that you're going to doubt that and have reason to doubt that. You need to know that you're confirmed to the end. The second thing he tells them, chapters 2 and 3, 
He says, don't make too much of pastors. Beware of leaders. Beware of, really, specifically, leader worship, leader idling. Beware of putting a pastor or a prophet or an apostle or a teacher on a pedestal and leaning too much upon their example for your faith. Because if you do that, you're going to be disillusioned and ultimately you're going to be ripped off from what you could receive from other things. His conclusion of that is the third thing, which is this, that you are called to learn from everything. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to it. He says, therefore, let no man glory in men. Don't put people on a pedestal. He says, for all things are yours. Literally, all things are your teachers. And here's what's to teach you. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter, the apostle, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours or all are your teachers. In other words, learn from everything. Everything that happens to you every moment of every day in every situation in every season of your life. Even the things that haven't happened yet, learn from everything. All things have been made by God to be your teachers. The fourth thing that he tells them is that virtue matters. The way that you walk and conduct yourself and the values that you hold are important. Number five, he tells them conflict in this world is unavoidable, but protect God's reputation in the midst of it. The sixth thing that he tells them is that family relationships are great, but they're extremely complicated. Good luck. That's it. He doesn't give them, he doesn't give them much more than that. He actually tells them you're probably better off not doing that. That's, that's Paul's instruction concerning it. Number seven, there's tension between truths. The truths of indulgence, sacrifice, and freedom. Okay, indulgence are the, the impulses and desires that I have. Sacrifice is my call to set aside some of those things. And freedom is the permission I have to freedom. And he says essentially that there are tension between those things. And his application is, you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Because it's going to look different for you in your life than it's going to look for anyone else in their life. Good luck. That's what he says to them. You can read it. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. He says then, the next thing is that there's value in self-sacrifice. That when you do set aside your desires for someone else, you're going to find that that pays great dividends in the long run. He says nextly that you can, it's possible for you to make choices that are going to ruin your life even if you're saved. He gives us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, listen, don't, don't think for one minute that just because you're saved, you can't make a mistake that's going to ruin the rest of your life. Take heed to that. His next thing that he tells them is that learning to love is more important than anything you will ever do for God, no matter what it is. And that without love, you'll never do anything valuable anyways. He puts a high priority on that one part of humanity that is learning to genuinely love. He goes on from there at the end of 1 Corinthians to say that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important and far-reaching event in all of human history. And without it, there is no reason to exist and there's no hope for humanity. That it is the critical event of human history. And then number 12, this is the last one, and it is the singular message 
of 2 Corinthians, that entire uh, book that we have in our New Testament, and it is this, number 12. Learn to be authentic. Learn, in other, in other words, learn to strip away the clothing. Learn to figure out who you actually are and then live in that space with God. Strip away the sheep's clothing, the soul clothing, and learn what it means to be a human that's filled with Jesus Christ. And more than that, even, learn what it means to be you filled with Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I listed those 12 things off is not to give you just a quick overview and let you know that I read First and Second Corinthians uh, this week. Here's the reason. is because there are 12, 12 things in, in what I just gave to you uh, that, that Paul gives instruction concerning. And I could, I've been walking with Jesus for 24 years, something like that. And I could, I could write a book on all 12 of those things. And, it, and they would be good books. You would buy them and you would like them. Okay. I only really understand like seven. I know 12. Concept, description, definition, how it plays out in scripture, what it looks like, I, I know. But to really understand it, to really have lived it and, and to be able to say, when I hear you say that, Paul, I understand why you said that because I have felt it. I've lived through it. I've gone through it. I'm in the process right now in my life, in my walk with him, of learning the eighth. Do you know what the eighth for me is? It's this thing of authenticity. It's this thing of, 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 of stripping away the concern for what you see when you look at me or the projection of, of what I want to present and, and allow you to understand and, and perceive and say and think about me and to actually allow me to be me and for you to see me walking with Jesus as I am and not as who I think I'm supposed to be or who you want me to be. That's authenticity, okay? And, 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 and you know what I have discovered is that there is actually something worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do you know what it is? What, what did you say? No, you're close though. He said a sheep in wolf's clothing. No, a sheep in sheep's clothing. A sheep in some other sheep's clothing. A sheep that is wearing clothing that makes them look like a sheep that they are not or that projects an image that allows them to appear as though they are different than what they actually are. Do you know how I know that's worse? Because I have a closet full of other sheep's clothes that I have worn over the years because I have thought that this is who I need to be or this is what I need to be and actually to do it. God is on a quest, a relentless quest, listen to me, to reduce you to you. The irony is that we are on an equally powerful anti-quest to try to elevate ourselves to become what we think we need to be in order to meet with God. And the irony is that we both want the same thing. 
God wants to meet with us. We want to meet with him. He's trying to bring us down to the place where we just accept who we are. And we're trying to make ourselves something that we think we're supposed to be. And in the crosshairs, we're missing him constantly. We're not getting to that place. We think once I attain to a certain level or once I obtain a certain spiritual thing or grace or gift, or once I realize what I'm supposed to be or achieve something or uncover some mystery, some secret prayer that I'm supposed to pray, that then I'll really connect with God. And so we see someone that appears to have what we want and we begin to model our lives after what they're doing and we aspire to be like them. God says, listen, once you sit down, uncover what you really are, embrace and own who you really are, and just believe that you're enough because of Jesus and not because of you, you'll find me waiting there in that place. I can't help but think of Jacob in, in, in this, whole, uh, this whole arena, in this whole thing. Because Jacob wanted God. Like he, from, from the time that he was just coming to perception and, and realization of who he was and what family he was born into and, and, and the implications of the future history of, of the people that he was a part of. He just wanted God. And he was going to get God at all costs. And, and so Jacob, doing what he had to do in order to get what he wanted, he, he thought falsely, wrongly, that in order to get God, he had to find favor with his father. Because he believed that the, the way God would be imparted was through his father's approval, through Isaac's approval. And so he comes up with this plan because he saw that his father didn't really approve of who he was, but his father really approved of who his older brother was. And so he comes up with this plan with his mother, and they decide they're going to try to deceive the father into somehow giving God Listen, no man can give you God, okay? But, but he thought that that's the way it worked. And so he comes up with this plan and he goes in. He actually dresses like Esau and he fashions himself like Esau and he begins to lower his voice like Esau. And he goes into his father who can't see so great. And the first question his father asks, listen to it. He says, what is your name? He's talking to Jacob. And Jacob says, I am Esau. He thought he had to be someone other than who he was in order to get God. And it kind of worked. Because Isaac pronounces this blessing upon Jacob. But eventually, the suspicion turned into exposure and the fact that he had kind of faked his identity to try to get something was known, and he had to run. And Jacob did what we do. He began to run from his identity. He began to run from who he truly was. For 20 years, Jacob ran from who he really was. For 20 years, he ran, I've got to be Esau, I've got to be Esau. And you know what's amazing? Is that God was with him while he was running for 20 years. But do you know what happened at the end of 20 years? Is that he ran out of room to run. Because he had burned every bridge that was behind him, and now he was having to face what he had left behind 20 years ago, and he was caught between an angry army on one side and his brother Esau, whom he had deceived in front of him, 
And on one night, everything coming to a head, he realized, I'm done. My past is caught up to me. My future is completely broken. I've got no hope of anything. He put his people on one side and then the other, and then he himself departed to aloneness. And in that moment where he was just alone to wrestle with who he was, Jesus met him in that moment. He didn't know it was Jesus yet, but a man began to wrestle with him, and he wrestled with him all night long. And then that man said these words. He said, what's your name? And he said, I'm Jacob. And in that moment, when he owned his identity, when he owned his failure, his weakness, his fear, his lack of measuring up to what everyone else wanted him to be, and he embraced invulnerability who he actually was, though he always thought it wasn't enough, it was in that moment that he found freedom. And it was in that moment that God informed his identity and said, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. Your new name is Israel. You're going to walk with me. And for the rest of his life, he walked with Jesus and his identity was informed in that moment. There was instantaneous freedom. You say, how do we embrace our identity? How, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, for Paul, it meant that he had to get rid of the courage, get rid of the boldness, get rid of the fearless, get rid of the confidence. And he had to embrace the fact that, yeah, you know what? I struggle with weakness. I'm not as strong as I look on the outside. You know, yeah, I, sometimes I, I appear like I, I don't fear anything at all, but in actuality, I, I'm petrified. I just want to get to the next city right now because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I stay here any longer. And if I don't have a promise from God that he's going to protect me here, I don't even want to be here in this moment right now. Because that's who I truly am. And it was okay for him to not be what he thought he had to be. And the irony is that God's power was actually manifested through his weakness and his vulnerability. For you and I, I don't know what it looks like. What are you running from? What are you afraid to embrace about who you actually are? What are you afraid to let people know about and see in you because it doesn't measure up to what they would expect of you or what they think of you based upon what's been projected outwardly? Because as long as there is that clothing that's hiding the true you, you are not free. And you don't have the ability to actually relate to people because you can't have a relationship with a fake person. And so it actually kills your reason. It kills your identity. It kills your growth. It kills your effectiveness to be and do what God's called you to be and do. And the amazing thing is that Jesus, when he hung upon a cross and died 2,000 years ago, he removed every obstacle that would cause you to be ashamed or make you ashamed of who you are, and he makes you perfect and holy, and you can come before him, and you can be complete and absolutely uh, uh, full in him. Uh, interesting thing, in Psalm chapter 51, when David fell, and he had that whole thing with Bathsheba, where he really, really, really royally messed up, when he comes to on the other side of it, and he's, he's speaking to God, and God's restoring him and healed him, you know what the realization was that David came to? He's like, God, all you ever really wanted was truth in the inward parts. 
just the, the, the honesty of who I am. You don't, you're not interested in all of my clothing. I hope that you can find the place where you can give yourself so unreservedly to Jesus that you're able to shed away the clothing of what you think you're supposed to be or what everyone expects you to be, and you can be free to be who you are right now and let God work in you from there. That's what he wants to do. Father, we just pray tonight as we uh, think on these things and, and we consider, Lord, what you would want to do with us and whom it is that we might influence in being whom you've called us to be. Would you change us? Would you help us? Would you help us in our marriages, Lord, to, to break down the walls that we would know true love and intimacy with our spouses? That would help us with parents as parents to be able to be truly vulnerable with our kids. And would you help us, Lord, in your church and as your representation in this world to just be so authentic and real that the fakeness of the sheep's clothing would fade and the glory of who you make us internally by your presence in us would be truly seen. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. There's so many people that just need to see reality, authenticity, struggle, weakness, in truth, with joy. So help us, Lord, to be that. Speak to us, Lord, and continue in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.